However, while change is inevitable, there's one thing you can always be certain of in a raker book. Someone, somewhere, will be missing. Welcome to this episode of Game On Girl, where we talk about gender and game culture. I'm your host today, Rhonda Oglesby. And I'm your guest host, Mark Scholl. This episode is number 130, and it is recorded on September 17th. Our guest today is the Sunday Times best-selling author, Tim Weaver. So stay tuned, and we're glad you're listening to Game On Girl. We're thrilled to have Tim Weaver on the show today. He's the best-selling author of five thrillers, all of which feature the missing persons investigator, David Raker. He's a former journalist and a magazine editor, and has written extensively about video games, film, television, and tech. His American debut, Never Coming Back, was nominated for a National Book Award in the UK, voted 2013's Best Crime Thriller by Apple iBookstore, and he was selected for Richard and Judy, the UK's biggest and most prestigious book club. He writes full-time now and lives in Bath, England. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Good, good. And uh, Mark's with us on the show today, and we're going to just kind of talk to you about uh, your debut and some of your background. Um, <clears throat> besides my friends, I get a lot of my book recommendations from Entertainment Weekly magazine. And actually, that's where I heard about Never Coming Back. On July 4th, they published a list of 10 thrillers to read for the summer. And that's where I found it. Oh, really? I didn't I, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know it featured in there. Well, I was wondering about as far as this being your very first publication, Never Coming Back um, for our listeners is... Uh, the fourth in the David Raker series. And I was wondering how much you knew before you wrote the book, did you know that it was going to be published in the U.S.? No, not at all. Um, I mean, my my path to U.S. publication has been uh, has been uh, uh, littered with disappointment, uh, really, because uh, the, the irony is really as though although my thrillers are all set in the U.K., I I'm, feel that I am heavily influenced by uh, American crime and mystery fiction in particular. And, and, and the reason for that is that uh, I really grew up reading almost exclusively uh, American and crime and uh, thriller and mystery authors. So I feel a kind of quite a deep connection to um, to American thriller writing. And, and so um, although, like I say, my thrillers are set in the UK, I hope that they... Um, they uh, display some of the the, the scope and uh, the, uh, the the I lo- so love about uh, about American thriller writing, and so I was very very excited, as you can probably imagine, about the prospect of being published in the states, and also you know because let's face it, uh, you know the states is the biggest market. It's uh, it's if you want to make a uh, a success of yourself, you have to 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 break the the uh, American market. So you know there were the, there were commercial considerations, but pr- predominantly and first of all, there were uh, was the excitement of being published in the states. So I was really excited about it. We we submitted um, my debut and uh, and uh, the second book in the series to uh, a variety of American publishers, and it was met. They were both met very positively, but ultimately. Um, I didn't get an offer from anywhere. Um, and so, you know, I was obviously you know, disappointed about that, but um, accepting of the fact that, you know, uh, it wasn't necessarily the, the right time for it, perhaps uh, not the right time for me uh, and not the right books, perhaps. But um, I think the reason that Never Coming Back perhaps made more of an impression on on American publishers was because it, it, it did... Um, you know, very fortunately, uh, uh, did very well over here. It was like you mentioned in your intro was was picked up by a, a book club here called the Richard and Judy Book Club, which is pr- pretty much as um, I suppose as big as book clubs get in the UK, and uh, and it and it really made a huge impact in terms of uh, uh, a huge impact in, on never coming back in terms of sales and, uh, and and in terms of getting it in front of people. And so I think that helped to um, perhaps elevate its status slightly. And, and, and I think maybe the American publishers uh, took more notice of it um, as a result. And, uh, and I think also, you know, the other side of it is that uh, never coming back is a more, a much more ambitious book than anything I'd ever attempted before. 
And also, uh, it, it does have a, you know sections in it that are set in the states, so that helped to kind of uh, maybe uh, uh, you know maybe help uh, American publishers and editors warm to it a little bit more. Uh, and you know, very very fortunately, I got uh, finally got an offer from uh, from Penguin, from Viking, who are part of Penguin in the US, and, and ironically, I am published by Penguin in the UK as well. So it was a it was a nice fit, and uh, and uh, yeah, the book came out on July the third, and. You know, it's been uh, it's been lovely to see it, uh, see it, you know, see an American audience kind of get hold of it. And because of the fact that it has uh, been released here in the States finally and, and it's getting a good reception, have you heard anything more about the the previous um, books in the series being published here in the States? Uh, not at the moment. No, I mean, the 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 hardback was published on the, uh, July the 3rd. And, um, and I think the paperbacks are not going to be published till uh, 2015. So it's quite a. It's quite an elongated process, and uh, and I suppose you know I think that they're gonna they're gonna see how it how it does in, in in paperback. I mean it's done it's done pretty well so far. I mean you know don't get me wrong, it's not pulling up any trees, but it's uh, you know it's a massive market. It's hugely competitive, and I am virtually unknown in in the US. So you know you you have to start you have to accept that the you know the majority of the time you are gonna start from small beginnings you know that's how i started in in the uk as well you know i mean my first couple of books sold you know not very not very i mean they didn't sell badly but they weren't you know it didn't set the world alight and uh, you know i was getting paid extremely small advances for them and and you know i accepted that because i knew that it was a it was a long game and uh, and you know coming out in the us it is like uh, exactly the same as when i came out in the uk you have to accept that it's going to take time so hopefully, you know, they'll they'll come, you know, Penguin will come back uh, next year and look to, uh, to, to to publish some of the others. You know, the most natural stop off, I suppose, um, next would be would be the book that's just come out in the in the UK, the fifth uh, one, the follow up to Never Coming Back, Fall from Grace, which uh, came out in the UK last month. But but we'll see. You know, I uh, I don't uh, I sort of been doing this, you know, five books in now. I've been doing it long enough to know you, you don't second guess everything uh, and you don't take anything for granted either. <laughs> well, I'm going to step back just a little bit because um, a lot of times when you talk to authors about their path into writing um, full-fledged novels, they usually take a, a trek through journalism, which you did. And you did a lot of uh, gaming and tech journalism, which I thought was was a really great thing to discover because, I mean, it sounds to me like you're a geek. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I grew up... Um, I grew up playing games. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I was like a, a, a mega gamer uh, in my teens. Uh, you know, I was um, a lot of my friends had SNESs at this. It shows how old I am. But I, I was a lot of my friends had SNESs um, and uh, and and I was more of an Amiga guy, uh, Commodore Amiga. You know, I used to uh, play that kind of stuff. And then I, I just sort of stumbled like, you know, uh, I sort of we were talking before we before we came on air about how about my sort of um uh education and and uh or rather lack of it i suppose and uh, and i sort of stumbled into journalism and uh and from there i really kind of cultivated my my uh love of uh, of video games really um i mean i wouldn't say i you know i spent a lot of years employing uh pe- employing writers and people on my teams who were absolutely you know like they used to come in and stun me with their uh, with the breadth of their knowledge and 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 the amount of games that they they played and and could reel off, you know, I was never that kind of guy. I was much more of a late uh, late bloomer in terms of games. But but once I got into it, you know, it was um, something that I absolutely loved. I mean, I loved being a, a, a games journalist, especially you know, like um, uh, sort of, I suppose like maybe 10, 12 years ago when it was a lot more innocent than it is now, and, uh, and you know, <laughs> yeah. I was running. Um, uh, I particularly remember running a magazine that was was sort of developed something of a cult following in the UK called N64 magazine. And it was just wonderful because it was, you know, there was no video games were still um, a bit like the Wild West. You know, they were um, there were no sort of, you know, it wasn't like Call of Duty with a billion dollar marketing campaign. You know, it was very much like uh, you were getting game, you know, games like I remember Resident Evil coming on to the um Mm-hmm. N64, N64 and it just literally turned up out of nowhere with no fanfare whatsoever so exactly the same with GoldenEye when that came out on yep. N64 I mean you think about that now I mean GoldenEye is like a 
seminal game. I mean, it is mm. like one of history, one of history's greatest shooters. And it honestly turned up in the office just in a brown, you know, brown envelope one day, and it was like, oh, here's a copy of Goldeneye for Nintendo. And and we, you know, it had no fan <laughs> So it was a lot more innocent, and you know, it was a, a, a and, and in, in a lot of ways a, a, a lot less serious than it is now. And I mean, that's good and 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 bad, I suppose. But I did enjoy those days and. Obviously, back then it was sort of pre-internet, so people—the only way people could get information was via magazines. So, not only were we obviously selling bucket loads of copies of magazines, but we were—we had a really dedicated and a lovely audience as well. You know, I mean, a lot of the vitriol you get online now it just didn't—it it didn't seem to exist back back then. You know, it was—it uh, was a much more, like I say, it seemed like a much more innocent time anyway. Yeah, definitely. I've got a follow-up question for you then. Um, what's your favorite game or favorite genre of game? I'm not really one for. Um, uh, I don't really like FPSs. I'm not. I'm not big into like uh, shoot, shoot, kill, kill. I'm not. Um, I don't really. I don't really get on with them. I, I prefer something that's a bit more uh, slow paced. I mean, I. I've always. I didn't. I didn't love the last one in the series, but I've always loved uh, the Hitman games. You know that sort of. Um, very slow burn kind of um, uh, approach to levels. You have to think about stuff. You know, Metal Gear is great as well. I mean, I loved Goldeneye back in the day because you could have that, and there was that lovely balance between um, shooting and uh, and stealth. You know, and uh, I love I love stealth games. I'm a big fan of stealth games. Um, I'll, be, I'll, I'll sort of play anything, but I. I, I I mean, I, one of the games that I really loved quite recently was I really, you know, really from probably the fourth game. Um, I mean, I, I played them all, but I loved Forza, Forza Motorsport. I thought the fourth one was exceptional, absolutely exceptional. And I'm not even a massive motorhead, you know. I don't really, I don't really. I mean, as long as my car starts in the morning, then that's about <laughs> my, the extent of my, uh, my, uh, um, you know knowledge and 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 passion for cars but i absolutely love the fourth uh fourth so i thought it was absolutely uh brilliant and um i mean the last game i've been such an uh, uh uh i've just literally just finished my sixth book and just sent it off to penguin this week so i've been on a insane uh writing schedule and uh and and so the last game i really really played was was gta 5 properly and uh and you know that was quite a that was quite a, quite a long time ago, you know. <laughs> and certainly, in terms of gaming, you know, mm-hmm. uh, games, you know, game the gaming environment moves uh, so quickly, you know. But um, but I tell you, one of one of the other games I absolutely love, and you can probably imagine why was uh, I, I I loved La Noir. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just because it was so up my street, but also because it was. Um, I actually like the linearity of it. I think as I get as I get older, I I I I mean, I play GTA Five, and I. I, I loved it, and I thought that as a technical uh, showpiece, it is just astounding that it was even running on, you know, like, well, it's not current gen tech anymore, but, you know, on an Xbox and, and PS3, it was in, it was incredible that it was was even capable of running on those machines. The stuff they'd done to it was amazing. But I, I, I almost found at some stages it was just too much for my, my brain to handle. You know, it's too many things vying for my attention. And, and I think as I get... As I get older, I like a, a little bit more of a, a simplistic life, you know. And, uh, what I liked about Elaine Noir was it was was more linear and uh, and it was more slow burn. And I just love the I love that like era, that sort of James Elroy kind of era, you know. It's just so really really appealing to me. So so yeah, I mean I, I love that and uh, and you know I'll, I'll pretty much play anything. One of the games I've, I absolutely must play that I shockingly haven't played and which I know will be right up my street is The Last of Us. Um, oh yeah which i just haven't got around to playing principally because i i was always because i ended up towards the tail end of my career as a uh, as a journalist on xbox magazines i never owned a, a playstation and uh, i always sort of there were very few games that came out on playstation that didn't come out on xbox um that i thought oh i wish that was coming out on xbox but the last of us was was definitely uh one of those and so i wish i'd had the opportunity to play it but i see now it's out on the on ps4 so uh so i might end up getting a ps4 at some stage just to play the last of us there you go yeah you'll be set up now you're also a huge film buff yeah i mean i, I love films you know to, to, to be honest you know films were i mean re- reading and uh, uh and you know novels and films are really my my 
first love, you know, I mean, I, I talked just a second ago about how I was a sort of latecomer really to, to video games. And, uh, and, you know, when I first started in, in video games, you, you didn't have the emphasis on narrative and script scripts like you have now, you know, I mean, now you, you, you know, I mean, I haven't obviously been in journalism for almost a year now, but certainly the, the tail end of my career in, journal, in games journalism, you went to so many game studios and they'd all say to you, yeah, right, let's talk up front about our script. And you're thinking, well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. But, you know, I, I, I want to know about the game, you know, and it was, ne- it, was ne- it was never like that when I first started. So I used to get a lot of that kind of side of things from from my love of films, you know, and uh and so, yeah, a big, big film fan. I mean, uh, what's interesting in, in recent years is that I, I found that my uh, my cinema going has tailed off because we're in such a golden age of TV at the moment that you, yeah. it's, it's, um, you, you almost have everything you need on your your TV at home, you know. And uh, and so we, we I, don't, I don't think I get to the cinema quite as often as as. I used to, or perhaps should, but um, but yeah, I do. I do love movies, and I I love I love TV as well. Now that was what you were originally going to study at university, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I had a um, uh, uh, I had a place, or you know, sort of set to uh, to go and study uh, film uh, at uh, at university in London, and uh, and it required me to get a certain um, you know, certain grades for for certain subjects, and uh, and I remember going up to this interview. Uh, there and uh, and the, the, immediately when I got in, I thought this is definitely the place I want to go to because for well you know potential students waited uh, uh, you know for to be seen by um by the admissions people uh, they had a, they had uh, they were showing on the TV The Shining which is absolutely one mm. of my you know number one favorite favorite films and uh, and so I knew I thought this is the definitely the place and I did my interview and they liked what I had to say and so I went away and had my sort of place secure to study film and what what I liked about this course was it was 70% practical so it was going to be learning the the kind of art of filmmaking rather than necessarily the theory of it and uh and yeah I was all set to go but uh, I spectacularly messed up my exams and uh oh. and, then, and then I realized that I wasn't going to get you know I wasn't going to get to go to do this course and so I decided to to take a year off from um uh, from education and I uh, sort of stumbled into this job as a as a writer on a Nintendo magazine and uh, and uh, yeah from there I kind of never looked back really awesome. that's pretty awesome yeah I mean it was it was very fortunate because I honestly didn't have I didn't have a, a sort of clue what I was going to do when I uh, when I when I didn't get that that you know, we didn't get the grades to get my, you know, get on that course. I, I had literally no idea. I mean, I went and worked for our um, Brit- British Gas for uh, for about three or four months, which was, um, you know, uh, as a job. My my uncle worked there, and he managed to get me like a, a sort of short term job there, and I was very very grateful because I had, you know, it was earning me money, but it was so boring, and I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to do that, you know, particularly. And uh, and then luckily, I saw this job advertising the the paper for a for a writer on what wasn't actually a, a video games mag it was actually a um a magazine uh, that was uh, sort of to do with the internet and, and i applied for it and i went for an interview and he said that you know you're not quite right for us but i, I know someone else is looking and he recommended me to this guy who's looking for a writer on a nintendo magazine and uh, and ended up getting that so i could easily have you know my career i could have easily gone in another direction but uh but fortunately it went uh, i ended up on this nintendo mag and from you know like i say from there it was just a uh, I did it for you know I worked in magazine on the magazine side of things and uh, and then latterly on the internet side of things for eighteen years and uh, and I you know I, I, it wasn't always sunshine and roses but most of the time it was uh, it was lovely because you know the people I worked with were were just just wonderful and the environment we worked in was 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 really really fun and you know journalism is not you don't go into journalism to earn incredible wages yeah um, you go. You go into it to uh, because it's just, uh, I suppose, a calling, and uh, and you know you just get to go to these uh, wonderful, you know, been taken to some wonderful places and met some so many interesting people, and uh, and I wouldn't have ever traded that experience for anything. Uh, is university as expensive there as it is here? Yeah, I mean it is expensive, and it's only getting more expensive now. You know, um, I think you know I. I to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit out of touch with it, so I wouldn't be able to uh, kind of, you know, say how expensive it is. And, you know, fortunately, my, my daughter's only eight, so we've got 10 years before we need to worry about that. 
but um but yeah i i i I, it is expensive and you know you hear about people you know still paying off student loans like 10 15 years later so i think it's uh it's one of those things that um that i think for a lot of people you know before you know the prices sort of started becoming prohibitive we'll go into university just as a kind of rites of passage kind of thing you know whereas not not necessarily as a a way to you know further themselves um but i think now it's definitely something you either do because you you want to become qualified in something or you don't because it's too expensive um i actually want to go back to your first book when you when you were working to get published i read online that um in an interview it took you about 10 years to get published yeah and it, you know, you basically shopped the book around for about eight years and, and and kept trying and rewriting and stuff like that. And then you basically took a break for a while when I think it was your daughter was born, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw in that that you said when you came back to it, um, you went back and you read the first book and you had an epiphany and could see, you know, what was wrong with the book. And I was just curious reading that. What was it that you came back and saw that was wrong and why do you think you were able to see it well i think you know there are there are, were a lot of things wrong with it uh it was um i mean it was a thriller that didn't thrill particularly <laughs> i mean it wasn't very, it wasn't very exciting uh it was too it was leaden you know uh, it was overwritten uh it was you know too far too much um description in it you know like i, I like nice writing but you know when you're writing a thriller it can't come at the expense of of uh the plot moving forward you know um so there, you know top to bottom there was so, there was so so much wrong with it the characters you know weren't fleshed out enough and all sorts of problems particularly problems with pace though i remember before um i went back and worked on it i'd sent it off to an agent and she'd expressed um some interest in it she said she liked the concept but um it was uh it was not fast paced enough and and wasn't um you know what didn't didn't kind of keep her uh it, you know didn't keep excitement levels up all the way through so i i, I you know and i and the thing is when you're going through the, the the process of sending off sample chapters and a and a synopsis to to agents and then sending back rejection letters just standard rejection letters uh, you, you know something's wrong with your book, but you don't really know what. You know, you just know that yeah. people are re- rejecting it, and you don't you don't really know why. So all you're really doing is going back to that book and and adjust, adjusting it and adjusting it and editing it and editing it and redrafting it over and over and over again with no idea whether you're even doing the right thing. So I keep se- I kept sending it off to places, and they kept you know rejecting it. And this woman, you know, who was this agent, uh, she she was she remained kind of interested in it, but not to the extent where she was particularly chasing me for it or um, wanting to you know checking up on its progress or, or or whatever. So, and then my daughter was born. I took six months off, and I, I think that the benefit of distance really can't the 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 importance of that can't be underlined. I mean, uh, enough. It is just so important to get distance on what you're writing, and. Uh, because you know when you work so long on something and uh, put so much of yourself into it you become it becomes impossible to to uh, look at it with a fresh pair of eyes to get any you know to gauge it uh, in any way and uh, and so those 6 months off really gave me the opportunity to come back to it and look at it anew and, uh, and 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 when i read it i could see all the you know the problems with it and so i spent a long time editing it and you know it, uh, fortunately quite quickly i managed to pick up an agent and then i'd signed with penguin fairly quickly as well but you know there are still and and, and it, the, the same is true now you know like six books i've just finished my sixth book and you know i look back at that debut and it, it and i can see it is incredibly rough around the edges and you know that's again with the benefit of of distance you know and and also i think to, to a certain extent with, le- with learning your craft you know as you go on you it's the same with any form of writing you know become a better writer well you hope that you become a better writer over time and i think that certainly with writing books you know you can you can um see over the course of i can see over the course of six books that uh, you know i have progressed as a as a writer and that the learning curve although very very harsh and, and hard to climb you know is there and if you're willing to to scale it and and try to 
you know, with each book to try to tackle something different and do something different that the, the rewards are there, you know, and the, of all the books that I've written, I'd, I would love to go back to the first one and, 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 um, make, you know, do a Stephen King style revision on it. Um, you know, because I think it would, I think it would benefit from it. The others, I think, uh, there are things in it that I would probably, you know, alter a little bit, but I think generally from the second book onwards, I was starting to get into my, um, you know, starting to get in a bit of a rhythm. And I think that, I, you know, between the first and the second book, and I think this is backed up generally by people's reaction to the difference between the first and the second book, I think is quite stark. And that, and I think that's because the first book, you know, the bones of that first book were written like 15 years ago, you know, so it is, it does feel, um, it doesn't feel as, um, as, as sort of together as, as perhaps the other books do. But, you know, it was, it was, good enough to get me a publishing deal and, and i'm very grateful for that but it is definitely a book that i would love to go back and um, and, and have a little tinker with well maybe if you get to uh release it here in the states you can do that yeah i mean i think it is a book uh, i think it is a book that i mean being perfectly honest i think it is a book where um the the the, the balance between uh, uh the way that the, the violence is handled in chasing the dead i don't think is is as as well done in as in the other ones and i think that um i, I think that if it if it did ever come out in the states then i would definitely have to address that because I, I don't think it would settle as well in the in the states as it is it you know i mean it was it, it's done it, you know the reaction to it in in the uk has been generally pretty positive but of all and i don't think it's any surprise that it is the most divisive of my books um, well, I know that our listeners <clears throat> are wondering whether or not that we're going to talk about the book release in the U.S., and we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about Never Coming Back? Um, I just wanted an opportunity to ask you some questions that uh, other interviewers might have asked you before. But go ahead and give us a little recap of your elevator speech about uh, Never Coming Back. Okay, so Never Coming Back is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, features a, a series character who's been with me uh, since since the beginning called David Raker, and uh, and he uh, sort of specialises in missing persons cases. He actually started off life as a as a journalist, but um, but he made the switch into missing people after his his wife passed on, and uh, and he was feeling like he um, kind of needed a something else in his life, something different. And so Never Coming Back Caesar is, like all the books, is based around a, a, a mysterious disappearance. And in, and in this case, it's a disappearance of a, of a family. Um, what happens is the sister of the wife of the family, a, a lady uh, called Emily Kane, goes to a, a sister's house. Um, uh, a, a sister's called Carrie, and she goes to Carrie's house, and uh, the front door's unlocked, and she goes into the house, and the, she finds uh, the food still cooking on the stove, the uh, the table's all set for dinner, the TV's on, the you know, kids' toys are all over the floor, the dog's wandering around the house, but uh, there's no sign of the family anywhere. Their cars are still on the drive, but there's no sign of them anywhere. So it's a bit of a sort of Marie Celeste kind of disappearance, and uh, and uh, and obviously, you know, Emily is unable, you know, through the police, the police are unable to find the family and she becomes somewhat desperate about uh, wanting to know what happened to her sister and, and, and her sister's family. And so at the same, you know, at the same time, you know, that not the same time, but, you know, shortly after this happens, uh, Raker, you know, the previous book in the series vanished, you know, things happened, uh, it ended in a way that forced R Raker to kind of go back to this small fishing village on the south coast of, uh, of England, where he grew up and, uh, and uh, back there to recuperate. And, uh, and what we find out is that, you know, fairly early on in the story is that um, Raker and Emily used to go out before Raker left this village at the age of 18 for London, where he you know, went to study journalism and became a journalist and spent the rest of his adult life. And so, you know, Emily kind of um, goes to Raker and says, look, you know, I've read about you on the Internet. I've read about what you do. You know, I need you to find my sister's family. And so from there, Raker kind of picks, picks up the case, even though he has doubts about it. I think he has a lot of doubts about the fact that they have previous but i think more doubts about the fact that he's should be recuperating from from the events of the previous book but uh, but he takes on the case nonetheless and and from there as you can imagine this sort of events slow uh, quickly spiral out of control raker can't really help himself though no he's something of an obsessive and actually you know as the as the the books have gone on it's um that's that's become more of a 
more of a sort of burden for him to bear. And yet I think, you know, I mean, what is set up in the first book is that his, his wife um, uh, died early, you know, but very young from, uh, from breast cancer. And so he found it um, incredibly tough as you'd expect to to get over that. And and one of the reasons he began looking into missing people was because he saw uh, them as a way to kind of fill the, the gap left in his life, but also because the, the way the families felt about the people that, that were missing, you know, their loved ones that were missing was, was in many ways parallel to the way he felt about his wife missing, you know, she, she's gone, but she's missing from his life. So, you know, he, 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 he sort of took it on from there. And as the books go on, he feels more and more of a, a, a sort of responsibility to the missing as if he needs to deliver them somehow. And, uh, and I think uh, that becomes more and more of a theme. And obviously in the, in the new one, it, that's just come out in the UK, it kind of comes to a head in, in a way that, um, you know, and, uh, and he is, you know, like you say, he is a bit of an obsessive and, but he's an, he's an obsessive for the, for the right reasons. I think, you know, he, he kind of feels like an attachment to these people and he feels like a determination to, to bring them home uh, one way or another. Yeah. I like the idea that he is not uh, a PI or a gumshoe or a police officer or, or uh, you know, special ops detective or anything like that. He just looks for missing people, which I think is very, very compelling. And he, also the process in which he goes through t- in discovering the facts behind the case, the questions that he asks. The whole time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking of these questions and he ends up asking them. And that makes me feel really attached to the way that Raker thinks. Yeah, I mean, that was a very conscious decision, to be honest, um, because I grew, like I said to you um, right at the start, you know, I grew up reading American uh, crime thriller fiction, you know, so I, I read a lot of like Michael Conley and uh, Thomas Harris and, and that kind of stuff, you know, like uh, Raymond, the classics of genre like Raymond Chandler and, and uh, Ross MacDonald. So there's a grand tradition of doing PIs and damaged detectives and that kind of thing. And I think that I loved, you know, I love those books, but I, I wanted something that was um, a little bit different, you know, and, and at the time I, you know, was sort of constructing my debut, there, there weren't many people doing missing persons cases you know I mean I, I could really only think of Harlan Coben at the time who was regularly doing cases that were involved people just vanishing into thin air and, and one of the you know one of the appealing things about taking that on as a, as a writer is that you know in the UK there's you know approximately about 250,000 people going missing uh, every year you know which is a lot of people and, mm-hmm. and uh, even if you say that probably the vast majority of those people will uh, eventually be found you know there are a small majority of people a small minority of people who who won't be found and you know if you go onto a, a website like uh, missing people which is a charity here in the uk they have a have a section on there where you can you can check out um you know missing persons cases that are three years and older all these people who have disappeared and it is extraordinary an extraordinary mm. number of people have disappeared and uh, some of them have been gone for like 10 15 years with no explanation whatsoever and it is just i mean you can't even imagine what that must be like for the families yeah. left behind you know so it was you know as a writer you're immediately drawn to those kind of very emotional um heart-rending stories and i i felt it was a it was a it was an interesting angle for for a thriller as well because the other thing with missing people is that you know there is no there's no real beginning other than someone's gone missing you know you're not starting out with a body or a crime scene sometimes you're not starting out with any clues at all so yeah i mean i think it was it was an it was a good angle to go for and i think that i'm glad that when you read it you all the questions that you were asking in your head raker was kind of answering because i think there's nothing more frustrating than when uh, a hero in a book or even in a film or a tv show or wherever a video game for that matter you know doesn't ask a, a pertinent question which uh, which you know should should propel the the plot forward and uh and so, yeah, it's, you know, I'm glad that it, that, that kind of resonated with you. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed, too, is that um, I, I was lucky enough to get hold of Chasing the Dead and um, just recently finished it. But you you also play with timelines in your book, um, going backwards and forwards in time, um, describing the different plot lines, mm. sort of like Quentin Tarantino does in, in like Kill Bill or Pulp Fiction. That's that's got to be something that's extremely difficult to keep track of is 
is that how the story comes to you in your head or do you uh, develop each plot line separately and mash them together or how do, how do you keep track of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it probably, <laughs> says, it probably says something about me that, um, that <laughs> believe it or not, I don't actually plan my books to any great degree. Um, you know, I'll have a, I mean, it'll always, you know, every, every book will always start out with a, a missing persons case where I'll think, here's a very mysterious way for someone to disappear. How can I build a story around that? And so I'll have a, an idea of the disappearance and then probably an idea of how it ends. But I I think in between everything kind of grows very organically. And I think um, that includes the the switching of of timelines. And that is something that I do. I'm trying to think I'm looking at my books now, pretty much all of them are done like that. And, uh, and, uh, and I I just think it's an interesting way of, of, uh, you know, knitting strands together because you know you don't need to be any kind of expert in the thriller genre to to start out reading a book and see there's a separate storyline going on and a different timeline it's no like great surprise when they come together but i think what's what's important is that you know that other timeline does give you an opportunity to tell a separate story and not confuse the reader at the same time because you know it's separate it remains very separate to the Raker storyline. And although you, you probably suspect that they're going to tie up at some stage, you don't always know the, the sort of, I suppose the tension comes from not really knowing how. So the timelines are, you know, they believe it or not, they don't really, I don't really plan them out. They just kind of come together. But, but, and because I write in, in that way is one of the lovely things is that stuff does develop organically and, you know, you can, you can be taken off because you don't know how the characters are going to react as either, you know, if you don't plan it, you know, they react yeah. in ways that you, you aren't even expecting. And and I think that is lovely. One of the downsides is that you can wrap yourself up, wrap yourself up a little bit sometimes in, uh, in knots, especially with, you know, like multiple timelines and, and in something like never coming back where there are quite big discrepancies in, in the, the timings of, uh, of events, it, it is quite hard and you have to be, you have a responsibility to the reader not to confuse them. But at the same time, I think you also have to, I think the vast majority of readers want to be challenged in some small way. You know, they don't want to be, they don't want to be reading, you know, the same old thing from, you know, starts at the beginning and and finishes at the end uh, in exactly the same linear fashion every time. And, uh, and although, you know, you have to accept that not everyone's going to like that, uh, kind of uh kind of structure for a book i think the majority of people seem to have responded to it um in the way that i intended and you know i'm happy about that because it's something that i think works and something that i would definitely continue doing so i've got a follow-up question for you on that then so when you're doing that organic writing in the middle there and you're you're bouncing back and forth between these timelines do you ever find that you have to take notes on the side to kind of keep things straight um for yourself as well or yeah i mean when i say i don't plan i mean i i do i i don't i i don't plan like i don't know whether you guys have heard of uh, the author jeffrey diva but i remember reading an interview with him once where um where he he said that he writes um plans down to the individual paragraph breaks in his in his stories you know so he's basically writing a plan that's almost as long as the as the novel itself you know and i think that is that is, um, I mean, I, you know, I find that both staggering and uh, I'm slightly in awe of him for doing that, you know, because I think that it's, it's an incredibly disciplined mind uh, that's able to do that. For me, it, it, it would take, you know, my, personally, this is my personal opinion, when I, you know, for my own personal books, it would take some of the fun out of writing and uh but you, you're right you know you do you do kind of hit stages where you think now what was that character and where was he at this stage and oh man what was that date and you know all that sort of stuff so so i do tend to keep like post-it notes um uh stuck to my computer in a very unscientific kind of way uh to to remind me of, of important dates and important events but um but generally what i'll i'll, I'll do is um is I'll go back afterwards and just make sure it all ties up. And and uh, and my copy editor 
uh, at Penguin Blesser. She she always says to me, um, uh, you know, I like I like reading your books, Tim, because they keep me on my toes and the timelines are hard to follow. So um, <laughs> so um, she's she's brilliant and and she's you know the major reason why a lot of these these timelines timelines do hang together and and uh, and you know why they why they work. But I think it is important to keep some notes. I don't want you to think that I just like write with you know like from beginning to end with no notes at all but I, I certainly don't write with a sort of jeffrey diva style plan in my head right um so that makes me want to ask you about um your writing process in general i want to kind of you know for people who don't write books i'm sure it'd be interesting to know how how does writing a, a book cycle work for you um on the big picture and then I, as a follow-up i'd kind of like to know um what it's like um, when you're writing a book on the day-to-day basis, you know, in your personal, you know, space. Um, so, I mean, I only, I only, uh, gave up journalism last November. So I've, I've really only been doing, uh, full-time writing 10 months. Uh, so I've only written one book, uh, as a full-time writer, um, how it worked with before, you know, with my first five books is, is I used to come home, Actually, not so much the debut because that was really, you know, a lot of that was obviously written, uh, you know, before I got a publishing deal. But certainly with the the, the four books after that, um, I, I'd come home and, uh, you know, as you you both can appreciate, you know, journalism isn't uh, particularly a nine to five job. So, you know, I was um, I was sort of getting home, you know, sometimes late, uh, sometimes bringing work home, and so it really became a a you know the, the the discipline really came from trying to eke out some time every evening to write and uh and you know slowly uh, over time uh, a book comes together if you do that i mean so i was working i mean i try as much as possible to have saturday and sunday evenings off um but but a lot of the time i was really only having one evening off uh, uh, every week you know and uh, and so i'd generally come home uh, have my dinner, uh, put my daughter to bed, uh, and then I kiss goodbye to my wife. She'd go down and watch TV. I'd go up to my uh, office, and then I'd write from I don't know half past seven, eight o'clock until you know, midnight, uh, and then uh, the next morning I'd get up and, and go to work, and and that would be my my process really. And and you'd really just try and get as much written as you possibly can. And when you've got a, a publishing deal in place, there is at least some um, um, incentive for you to do that you know what's harder is when you haven't got a publishing deal in place and uh, and you know before you get you, you've got that incentive you know it's it's much easier just to go ah I can't be bothered to write tonight <laughs> um, uh, and but believe me I've been there so you know before I was published it was a much slower process and a, a lot of people say to me oh I've I've got an idea for a book but I think it's you know make the, the key really is making that leap between oh i've got an idea for a book to oh i've written a book because it's you know i always say to people when they say that you know just go and write it just write it you know because yeah. it's really it's really easy to have that you know there are there are infinite ideas infinite ideas and they will you know they will come to you constantly but pursuing that one idea that's much much harder you know, and, and, and finding the self-discipline to do that, that's incredibly hard. So, you know, my advice to people, unpublished writers who want to get published is you, if you've got an idea, write, write, use it and write that book, because at least then you have something tangible in your hands that you can, even if you don't send it off to, to agents or, or publishers, at least you have something you can work on. And it's a building block, you know. And don't worry, because, you know, you will get to the stage and I'm still getting to that stage every single book, about 20, 25,000 words in me, where you get to that stage and you're just like, I hate this book. I absolutely <laughs> hate you've got you've got to kind of push through that that barrier, you know, and you've got to know that every writer, unless they're either a supremely confident or be very, very arrogant, will get to that stage uh, you've just got to push through it. So get that book written and then at least you have something you can work with and, and use, you know. So that was really my headspace before getting published and my headspace while working during the day and writing in the evening. And, and I'm not going to for a second pretend that it was easy. I mean, I remember my third book, Vanished, the one that 
came before never coming back was an absolute killer i it was it was a horrendous right and i was working at the same time you know i was running a magazine at the same time it was so stressful during the day and then i'd get home and have to write this book that was just not going the way i wanted it to go and you know by the end of it i was just absolutely burnt out and mm. so and so it is really hard and unless you're incredibly fortunate that you get you're one of these people who gets a, a massive advance right right off the bat and you can give up work day one you are going to have to be in that situation where you're slowly but surely kind of working your way through these books and slowly but surely with every book you're hopefully selling more and your advances going up until you get to the point where you can you know give up work and, and do it full time like I've been very fortunate enough to to, to do um, but the new book the, the one that I've written for, you know as a full-time writer has been it's been stressful you know in places and um, and I've sent it off and I said to my editor earlier when I sent it to him I said I absolutely hate this book but <laughs> um, but that's not unusual but I'll tell you what it's been a hell of a lot less stressful than than when I was working full-time so it's not easy and you know but but then you know I suppose nothing in life worth doing is is necessarily easy you know and um and without that sort of stress and strain along the way without that sort of you know I I look back now and think how the hell did I write six nights a week after working as a you know magazines all day every day but I did and I think without that um you know without that determination I suppose I I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in now well we wouldn't be um, the Game on Girl podcast if we didn't talk a little bit about um, the uh, gender representations in your book. Mm. And part of the reason why we got connected is because you read my review of Never Coming Back on our website. Um, and I, I was really thrilled. I ha- had a little fan moment when I saw the tweet, <laughs> I have to admit. Um but my criticism of the book, I love the book. It was it was one of the best ones I read this summer. Um, but my criticism was about the female characters. Yeah. And there are two um, what I considered major female characters in the book. And you mentioned one of them, Emily, who is um, family is the one that's missing her her sister's family. And then the other character is the mother in the missing family, Carrie Ling. And part of my um, Part of my critique was that they both seemed like extremely interesting women, obviously um, pivotal in the story, but they didn't have quite enough agency where I thought that the ending of the book could have more power. Um, reflecting on that and after reading the, the review, um, how do you feel about the female characters that you develop in your books? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, uh, let me say that this is a subject that I remain and uh, I probably always will remain pretty humble about. I mean, when I read your uh, review of Never Coming Back, I, I could um, I could immediately see what you were saying. I, I, and I didn't feel upset or offended by your criticisms at all, by the way. Good, I mean, good, good. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think they were, you know, very fair and, and measured and I, I'm willing to accept any criticism that's delivered in that way you know I think as an author you have to be you have to set yourself up for for criticism because not everyone is gonna like what you've written you know that's just um that's just part and parcel of it um I think there are two things here really one is that Never Coming Back happens to be a book that for various reasons and you know without wanting to give anything away is about the crimes of men in particular which is why it's populated predominantly by male characters um to talk more about it would be to give away the plot but having read it i think maybe Rhonda, you you sort yeah. of understand what i'm driving oh, at. yes uh, the, the second thing is I, I always set out in my books to write female characters in exactly the same way as i write male characters and that's three-dimensionally with as much texture as possible and with the hope that they stand up not as male or female but as interesting uh, people in their own right I mean, if I fail in that regard, it's never ever because I've deliberately attempted not to give my female characters agency. There are, you know, there are incredibly strong women in the world in the same way as there are incredibly strong men. And and there are vulnerable, vulnerable men in the same way as there are vulnerable women. Um, My hope is that both of those character types are addressed in the series as a whole, uh, regardless of their specific gender, you know, basically 
for me, it, it isn't about gender. It's about characters. Um, Good. Having said that, one of the reasons I remain sort of humble about this subject is because I, I'm a man, clearly. And writing female characters, you know, is, let's face it, outside of my comfort zone. I've, I've never been a woman. Uh, I, I never for one second experienced uh, womanhood. So there's simply no you know, way for me to draw on personal experience. So what I can really do is represent the, the female characters as, as honestly as I can. And although they perhaps don't have such a prominent part to play in Never Coming Back in novels like Vanished and, and certainly in my new book, Fall From Grace, there are what I hope is an extremely strong female lead who I you know, provide some counterbalance to the very sort of male environment of Never Coming Back. Um, so I definitely take on on board what you were you were saying and 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 I think it it is important constantly to kind of keep that in mind uh for, for me as a writer to keep that in mind you know um I you know I I I wouldn't for a second want want that to be uh leveled you know that that criticism to be leveled at me uh, uh constantly you know throughout the series I hope that hope that it isn't but I think it is very, you know, it's one of those areas that is very, um, di di you know, let's face it, it's difficult for me to to address. I, I don't want women in my, you know, the female uh, characters in my book to be like sobbing the whole time and, you know, like so upset about everything because that's just completely unrealistic. But, uh, but at the same time, when, uh, you know, when female characters come to Reka whose husbands or, you know, sons or whatever are missing, then I think they're, I don't think there's anything wrong with having them, you know, upset about what's oh, going. No. Uh, and in the same way, you know, in in the new, in the book I've just just written, you know, is about um, is about a, a male character, you know, who is, um, you know, he spends a, it's a very emotional kind of journey for him, and and he he you know he cries every bit as much as as anyone else. So, I you know I. I, I definitely, you know, I definitely remain, like I say, incredibly humble about all this. And, I, and if, if there's ways to improve that side of things in my books, I'm definitely willing to listen to to, to people who, who know what, um, what what they're talking about, uh, because I think it's important that you you address that. But 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 my hope is that as as a, as a whole, the series represents female characters. Uh, just as well as it represents male characters and um, and you know i hope that you know maybe if you picked up a copy of of the new one fall from grace you might find that you know there's in particular in that book there's a there's a female character who really does give uh, raker a good run for his money yeah and that's one of the things i want to emphasize to our listeners especially if you go back and read the review <laughs> that you really have to acknowledge uh, the fact when you're telling a story about men with men that that does not require you to balance things with a female character because it's a story about men and men are telling the story. I have, I have no problem with that. And I actually really love the character of Carrie Ling. I love the way that she developed. Yeah. And um, as she is revealed through the story, I think is really brilliant because in the beginning she's kind of just teased. And by the end, I I develop an enormous amount of grief that this woman has gone missing mm. uh, because of who she is. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and maybe that is part of it is that um, she is one of the missing people and I didn't get enough of her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really interesting, actually. I mean, I remember reading your review and thinking that you made a really an interesting point about it because, you know, the thing is with Carrie is actually, like you say, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but as, as the story goes on, she is revealed as actually being the glue that has kept this entire family together, really. And uh, and she's, an, you know, a lot of what goes on in that that book, you know, with all these, you know, in this very male-dominated environment, a lot of what goes on in that book is because of the the bravery of Carrie in a lot exactly. of ways. Uh, and so I think having read your review, I, I think that, you know, maybe there were ways in which I could have used Carrie more, you know, and, 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 and used the, her, her bravery and her, um, and the, you know, the way in which she, she went about, I still got to talk about it without spoiling it, but the way, the way that she went about 
things you know could have yeah. been could have been used in a different way but but I mean it's it's kind of gone now so I, I haven't got that opportunity but I you oh, know no. I, I do think that I do think you raise some really interesting points and it is something that um that definitely you know I mean uh, I I, I obviously i try and you know a lot of people tweet reviews at me and stuff and i, I try and I read them as as much as possible and I, I remember reading your review and thinking you made some really good points and it's something that um will definitely you know stay with me uh, uh, you know while i'm while i'm writing you know uh, female characters in 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 the future if you're starting off writing with the idea simply that you're writing characters with three dimensions mm. without the, the consideration of gender you're already starting off on the right foot and you're yes. already you've already got the right process and mm. there's not much more that you can ask for a writer to do than to do that and then tell a good story which is why never coming back was a page turner for me for mm. the summer yeah. and a uh, reason I went out and found a copy of chasing the dead even though it's not available in the u.s so yeah well i mean yeah i mean i think it's um it's a you know i think i think i've got to be honest enough to say that it's a it's a a constant learning experience in the same way you know writing books for me is a is a constant learning experience what i would definitely not want to do ever is is you know uh not give my female characters uh uh, a, a proper sense of 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 being part of a book and and not just being some cipher for something or just you know background window dressing. I mean that is so far from from what I would want to do. And 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 uh, and if I ever did that, I'd want someone to pull me up on it. You know because that is not my intention at all. Like I said, you know, and like you just referenced, you know, I start. I, I don't really apart from Raker, who I obviously. Uh, it's kind of an alter ego now, you know, six books in, but <laughs> apart from him, you know, I don't start out thinking oh, I'm going to make this one male and this one female, you know, they ju- it just sort of happens. And, um, and I think, you know, there is, there is, you know, a responsibility to make sure your characters live and breathe regardless of, of gender, you know? Well, I really hate to, um, end the interview, but I want to, um, respect everybody's time and we could just keep talking. But if you definitely went it, the next book that is released in the U S we should have you on again, just to talk about the, the new book. And hopefully we have got our readers interested in you, um, our listeners, I mean, and, uh, they'll pick up the book, um, on uh, timweaverbooks.com, you can find several interviews by Tim where uh, he discusses his inf- inspirations and his favorite list of books for those types of things, if you if you like finding that out about your author. Um, it, it, one last question, a quickie. If, uh, if you could cast David Raker in a television or, or movie, um, have you ever thought about who you'd like to play him? Uh, yeah. This is a this is one of those questions you get asked uh, a lot, you know, when you go out and do events and stuff. It's in fact, it's almost always the first question you get asked. Um, it's difficult, you know, because I think that uh, you know, for me, you know, Raker represents someone uh, you know very 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 different to perhaps who he you know represents to to other people. I mean, for for me, you know, any any writer that that says that uh, the character they're writing uh, isn't in part inspired by their own by themselves is 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 telling lies basically because a lot of yourself goes into a character you know so a lot of the way i mean don't get me wrong you know raker is a lot uh, more handsome and uh, a lot braver and uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and a lot more intelligent than i am but um but at the same time you know like maybe some of the ways in which he uh, treats people and speaks to people is is you know a direct result of the way that I'd like to you know be spoken to and and treated you know so you do, a lot of yourself goes into the character and because of that um I think it's it's always quite difficult as a writer to to sort of say who you'd like to see represent that I mean I think if if someone was if it was to go down that road um I I, I you know I'd be I'd like someone who was able to to balance off the 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 action you know the and you know the books aren't wall it's not like um sort of 1980s schwarzenegger film but it's you know there are action sequences and you know high high yeah uh, intent you know intense sequences in it so someone who can balance off that but more important to me would be someone who is able to handle the the emotional complexity of, mm-hmm. of Reiki. you know i mean this is a guy who hides his feelings 
pretty well from the majority of people. But when he's on his own, he's he's you know he's pretty he puts it pretty much out there. You know, he's not he he's pretty sad in a lot of ways. You know, and and uh, and and very and quite lonely in, in, in a lot of ways as well. And I think it's important that that comes across. And I think, you know, through the through the audio books I've had done of, of, of the novels, you know, you can, you get a little taste of, of how the right actor can really bring him alive in the way that you want. And, and, the, and the not quite right actor isn't as effective, you know? So I think it's, I think it's, it's one of those things that I would, you know, it could be that an actor who you've never heard of just really nails the way Raker is. And that's the actor that should play him. I don't think it has to be, you know, someone who is particularly well known. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's not the way to go, really. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, for for you, you know, Rhonda, having read it, you you probably see him very differently to I do, how I do. You know, so yeah. I think it is. That's why I generally try and sort of sidestep the question a little bit. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, it would be you know, it would be you know, lovely to um, to see you know see what happened. But you know, I've I've said many times, and you know, we've had this. There have been discussions about this sort of thing, and you know, I've got actually got some meetings next week uh, along this line. But I'm, I, I, I've said to my agent loads of times, you know, I'd, I'd literally rather never sign the rights away to to Raker or, or any of the books uh, uh, if it's not done in the in the right way, you know. So, yeah, so yeah. I think it's, um, I, you know, I've invested too many hours into him and 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 built this series up over too many years to kind of have it. Um, have it sort of uh, taken apart from the inside by casting the wrong person or having it made by the the wrong people. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've, uh, sorry, I've sidestepped your question a little bit. No, it's, it's brilliant. I, I loved watching you sidestep this. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. And it's funny because I, I looked through several interviews and I never saw, heard anybody ask that question. So I got caught on that one. Yeah, but no. we really, really appreciate you being on the show, Tim. Um, well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's it's been really awesome. Uh, hope our readers will check you out. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Game on Girl recommends you pick up one of the David Raker novels. It'll make a great read in preparation for Halloween. The series consists of Chasing the Dead, The Dead Tracks, Vanished, Never Coming Back, and Fall from Grace. Tim's a great guy, and you should definitely give these a read. <laughs> been listening to game on girl you can find all our social media connections on our website gameongirl.com i'm your guest host mark scholl and i can be reached on twitter at mars Oler, and you can reach me at mark at gameongirl.com and i'm your host Rhonda oglesby you can find me on twitter at row room that's r-h-o-r-h-o-o-m and uh we just can't thank tim enough for making uh time in his busy schedule to talk to us uh, again i was extremely thrilled whenever he responded to the the tweet about my book review and he was he was very kind and he is extremely open on social media he he highly encourages feedback and communication he's great that way yeah great guy to talk to um the box trolls uh, releases this friday september 26 um i think you guys mentioned it last week but it actually releases this weekend and yeah. fall television starts in full swing this month yay finally i know um regina will be happy um the good wife starts up again uh the big bang theory which i probably won't be watching they just kind of they kind of made me mad when they held out for a million bucks. I don't know. That just ticked me off. Um, Sleepy Hollow comes back. But the um, the exciting thing is Gotham starts. Uh, the Scorpion thriller, which is basically sort of a, a brain uh, group, a group of super smart people. See, I'm out of super smart words. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows I have trouble with the, with the word to say. But they're... Um, I'm happy that Robert Patrick is going to be the uh, lead of these group of incredibly intelligent people that are solving international crimes anyway. Um, Forever, which is also, it looks like a crime thriller, but it's got a sci-fi twist because the the lead guy apparently cannot die. He's immortal. Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. comes back. Bones come back, uh, which I know Regina will be happy about. And uh, the only other thing coming up is I'm going to try to go to WizardCon this weekend uh, in Nashville while I'm here. So I'm excited about that. Yep. 
That'll be cool. Um, is there any of the TV that you're looking forward to? Do you much television, Mark? Um, I am actually looking forward to the uh, new season of The Big Bang Theory. I know that you're un- upset with them, but hey, you know what? Those television <laughs> companies oh, are, yeah. are making They're all like that. Making millions upon millions of dollars just on advertising spots each at each advertising spot. So for the yeah. cast to get a little slice of that for every episode to me is not a big deal. Um, Sleepy Hollow, I didn't like it. I kind of fell out of love with it after two seasons or after two episodes. Um, I'm interested in Gotham. Um, I saw the ad for Scorpion last night, so I might check that out. Um, Marvel's Agents of Shield, uh, they better come up with some heroes and yeah. supervillains this season, or else no they're kidding. they're done. Um, and I love Bones. Uh, I, I watch it all the time when I get a oh, chance. Okay. So that'll that, that'll be nice to have some some new ones of those so cool yeah well game on girl is available on itunes and stitcher streaming these links along with references made in the show can be found on our website gameongirl.com the podcast is edited by ryan broom at desert tree media and the theme song good day by triple fox is used under a creative commons attribution license thanks for listening until next time we all say game on game on